0: Well, good evening, everyone. If you have your Bible with you, I certainly hope that you do. Open it with us to the Gospel according to Mark, chapter number 12. Now, we are slowly making our way through chapter number 12, but uh, we don't have very much further to go. But this evening, we're going to read verses 35 through 37. That is our text tonight, and as you have seen in the uh, bulletin, the title of the message is the Hypostatic Union, and uh, as we go through the sermon, I think you will figure out, if you don't already know, what we mean by that. But uh, before I read, let's go again to our Lord in prayer. And ask him for his enabling and, uh, and his blessing on the service tonight. Our Lord, we thank you for the privilege to have a copy of your word and that you have revealed your truth to us through your word. And oh, we want to know you more tonight. And so I pray that you would bless, bless the preaching and the exposition of your word. I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds and that uh, you would cause the words to just come off the page and, and that they might become real to us and that they might just become a part of us. And uh, that we might learn to rejoice more in Jesus than ever before. We ask it in His name. Amen. 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 Well, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now if you remember the last time we talked about the great commandment, the uh, section right before this, and Jesus has been uh, under attack, uh, we remember that uh, he's just uh, two maybe two days uh, before his crucifixion and he is uh, being uh, attacked by all the religious leaders they literally hate him. He has he has come and upset their way of doing things. He has, just by his very words and his actions, his works, he has exposed them for the frauds that they are. And I'll say this, and I know I've said this many a time, but we need to We need to get it and even examine our own hearts by this. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, all the zealots, all the religious parties in Israel were concerned only that people saw them as righteous, not as being righteous. They weren't nearly as concerned about actually being righteous as they were putting up a facade that would cause people to think they were righteous. And the thing that really burnt them was that Jesus was not deceived by the facade. He looked right through it and saw into their hearts and said, you're like whited sepulchers. You look presentable to men on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. They didn't like that. They didn't like that at all. And uh, it was just messing everything up. And no matter what evidence they saw, and this is, a, this is another thing that we need to understand is that the reason people don't believe in God, people say they're atheists and don't believe in God because there's no evidence, that is not true. That's not why they don't believe in God. It's not for a lack of evidence. It's it's because they don't want to believe in God. And so this is the same circumstance with Jesus' detractors and Jesus' enemies is that uh, there was worlds of evidence. They saw the works that he did. They had access to all the information that, uh, uh, that all the believers had and yet they rejected him. And so... Uh, they're going to crucify him. But as I said, he's been under attack. They've been asking him these questions that were designed to uh, trip him up in some way and discredit him among the people or even better, try to entrap him in such a way that he would get himself in trouble with the Roman government. And uh, they were looking for some reason to do away with him they wanted to destroy him they wanted to destroy his reputation they wanted to destroy his teaching they wanted to destroy him personally and so it was uh this was the uh, uh kind of atmosphere that Jesus was living in and uh and so he had been asked these questions he uh Answered the question so brilliantly that it caused them to uh, uh, just uh, shut up, and so Jesus takes his opportunity now, and he asks a question. He asked a theological question, and uh, he he asked one that uh, uh, should have been very obvious to them. Because they discussed it, it's one of those it's one of those theological questions that uh, uh, that people always discuss. You know, uh, Who is Jesus? Who is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? What's he going to be like? What's he going to look like when he comes? What are going to be some of the signs? Some of the characteristics that he has that will cause us to be able to identify him and Jesus. Is the one who has uh, had displayed all those characteristics. And yet they still refuse to accept him. And so as Jesus is teaching in the temple. And uh, we're talking about the temple compound. And uh, there is uh, 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 plenty of room uh, for large crowds together. And apparently there was a huge crowd there. With him, there were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were scribes, and all sorts of people uh, just common people that were there. And they heard Jesus teaching. And as he was teaching, he asked a question. (coughs) He says, How can the scribes say that the Christ, the Christ or the Messiah, Christ means the anointed one. That's another word for the Messiah. The Christ is the son of David. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Let's, uh, let me uh, read Matthew's uh, way of phrasing this because he formats the whole scenario a little differently. He says in verse 41 of chapter 22, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Now listen to the question and their answer. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the answer from these religious leaders, they said to him, The son of David. They believed that the Messiah was the son of David. So they believed in a human Messiah. They believed in a Messiah that would descend down through the line of David and he would be a rightful heir to the throne because he would be a descendant of David. And so they said, uh, they said, the son of David, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? And he quotes Psalm 110 and verse number one. This is the, uh, the most quoted scripture in the New Testament the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament, the Lord said unto my Lord, the L-O-R-D capital, uh, uh, capital letters, said to my Lord, capital L, the rest lowercase letters. So the Lord Jehovah or Yahweh said unto my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Yahweh, of course, is the I Am. He is the, uh, the God who revealed himself to Moses as the eternal self-existent one, the one who always is, the one who depends on nothing or no one else for his existence or for his continuance. He is the forever I am. And the word Adonai is another word for God, but it just means the sovereign one, the owner of all things. And so he says, David said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Did you get that? Jesus believed in the inspiration of Scripture. That Scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That David was speaking by the Holy Spirit when he said this. When he said Jehovah, Yahweh, said unto my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David then, he says in verse 45, calls him Lord, how is he his son? So David is calling him Lord in the present tense. When David says this, he's calling him Lord. So so there's two natures or two aspects of the same person here. There is Jesus, there is the Messiah, the descendant of David according to the lineage of the flesh. And then there is the Lord who is God. So that's a big puzzle, isn't it? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, I don't blame him. He's liable to turn around and ask you another question. So so here's some of the things that we just need to pick up along the way. Jesus is, uh, uh, Jesus is, uh, believes and teaches that the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture. And also, this is another important thing, uh, and I wouldn't have thought it was important to make mention of this, but, uh, Jesus believed that David wrote that passage of Scripture. Now you say, why is that important? Because it seems like there is a growing contingent of of scholars and uh, 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 textual critics that uh, have decided that David didn't write that. That that wasn't a Psalm of David. Although it's always been accepted that it was and Jesus said that David wrote. So, uh, I'm going to just go ahead and believe Jesus about it. So, Jesus believed in the inspiration of scripture. Jesus believed that David wrote this and Jesus is teaching these people, these his hearers by this question a very important truth and that is that the Messiah that they have Looked for for so long, the promised Messiah is both divine and human. He is both divine and human. And Jesus is that human descendant of David. He has descended through the lineage of David and it is proven in Scripture. And I've got to say that I'll guarantee you that the rest of these guys had access to the same information that Matthew had and Luke had. They could have traced his genealogy if they'd wanted to. They didn't want to. All they wanted to do was accuse him and find fault with him. But here's the thing. Matthew... And I won't take time to read the entire genealogy, but I would encourage you to do this. Matthew takes the uh, genealogy of David and he starts with Abraham, and, uh, or excuse me, the genealogy of Jesus. He starts with Abraham, comes up through David and Solomon and uh, Rehoboam and all of uh, that generation down to Joseph who was the husband of Mary. Mary was a virgin and she gave birth to Jesus. Joseph was not Jesus' father. And that is significant because in uh, the book of Jeremiah chapter 22, we find that there was a man by the name of Jehoiakim or Coniah, excuse me, uh, Jeconiah. And he said, and and this is what God said to him. He was the descendant, a descendant of the Davidic uh, line. He was uh, of the tribe of Judah. He was in the royal line. He said, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet Ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even unto the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now he was king when the Babylonian captivity took place. And I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Now listen, write this man down as childless. Now, he he already had children. So, he's got to be talking about something very important here. A man who shall not succeed in his days... For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So if that was the only evidence, that was the only line that could be traced from through David to Jesus, There might be an opportunity to say, well, you know, you can't take the throne because you are not the heir to the throne because Jeconiah was cursed and and so none of his descendants could sit on the throne. But the good thing is that he wasn't from the descendants of Jeconiah (laughs) because Joseph wasn't his father. Well, what are we going to do then? How is he going to be the descendant of David? Well, Luke does us a great favor. Luke was a historian and he was a very diligent man and he does us a great favor and he researches the lineage of Jesus and he goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam, but he's tracing Mary's genealogy. Now, uh, this is my opinion, as Pastor Russ says, this is my opinion, and there are people who disagree with this, but I do believe that the differences between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy can be explained simply that way, that it is Mary's genealogy, even though it calls Joseph the uh father of jesus it's uh or or saying that joseph is the uh uh yeah the father of Jesus what it's saying is that he is the son in law of mary's father uh heli who apparently didn't have male children and mary was a descendant of David. But if you follow the genealogy back through, you'll find that between Abraham and David, it's pretty much the same. But when you get to David in uh, Mary's genealogy, he doesn't go through Solomon and go through that line from David through Jeconiah. He goes through Nathan, the other son of David, And comes down to Jesus. And so what we have is the royal line that was cursed comes down to Joseph. And it stops because Joseph is not the father of Jesus. And so the curse can't apply. And you've got the legal line that comes down from Mary or through uh, uh, David to Mary, that uh, Jesus is absolutely the legal heir to the throne. And it uh, seems to me, if you look at it that way, that the two lines are exhausted in Jesus. He's the only one that could have been the man to sit on the throne. He is the only one who could have been the Messiah. He had a perfect, legitimate right to the throne of Israel if Israel had been an independent nation at that time. So he is perfectly displayed in Scripture, at least to my understanding, as the Messiah. And we see his human side, but there's more to it uh, than that because he says David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? David recognized that the Messiah was not just going to be a human being in his line, but he is the God of glory. And so Jesus became also The God-man. He being God came to earth and took upon himself humanity through the virgin womb of Mary. And he was born in human form and he became both God and man. He did not diminish in any of his deity, and he was no less man for being God. He is all God and all man. Now, I know if you're a physicist, you're going to say, well, it's impossible to be A and B both in the same place at the same time. (laughs) But with God, he can do what he wants to. So he's over physics. And Jesus is both God and man. He is all God and all man. That is a complex idea to think about. But that's exactly what the word hypostatic union means. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the hypostatic union. We're talking about two complete natures in one person, the nature of God and the nature of man. Jesus never hid the fact, he was not ever trying to hide the fact that he was God, and he never tried to hide the fact that he was man. When he was hungry, he ate, when he was tired, he rested. When he had needs, he uh, uh, sought to meet those needs. But when he was, uh, uh, when the time was necessary, he displayed his powers as God. You know, someone said that uh, he, as man, he lay in the uh, bow of a ship, asleep on a pillow. But as God, he got up and walked on the water, or rebuked the water. As uh, man, he was born, and as man, he lived, and as man, he died. But as God, he arose from the grave. Jesus Christ is both God and man. This has always been a a, uh, a hard thing for uh, for. People to figure out, and theologians are always arguing about it. And for the first uh, four or five centuries of the Christian age, there was all kinds of uh, disputes about different theological topics. We know about the first one, don't we? We know about that one in Acts chapter 15 when uh, the uh, Jerusalem Council gathered and uh, decided whether Paul was preaching the right kind of gospel or not. And uh, we re- we remember that, but, you know, over and over there were issues that came up, and there were people who were trying to diminish this theology or this doctrine of the uh Uh, hypostatic union of Jesus of the uh, fact that he was both God and man. There were many who uh, like a man by the name of uh, Arius who uh, he thought he could fix all the uh, misunderstanding by saying this that Jesus was the first created being of all. And so he was the son of God, but he was, uh, uh, he was not God. He was a little less than God, but more than man. That didn't work. That didn't, that was wrong theology. And so in 450, well actually 325 and then 451, there were some councils that dealt, dealt with these things. There were some heroes of the faith that emerged from those councils, but the Council of Chalcedon uh, finally came to a an agreement that uh, and issued a statement that confirmed what we believe as Christians that Jesus is both God and man. And let me just read the uh, Chalcedonian Creed, and then I'm going to read what our uh, our Statement of Faith says, our uh, Confession of Faith. Now this is uh, the 451 Chalcedonian Creed. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God... And truly man of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father, in other words, he's of the same essence as the Father according to the Godhead, and co substantial with us according to manhood. In other words, he's as man as we are in all things like unto us without sin begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, which I would strike that, according to the manhood, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures without, listen to this, without confusion, without change, "...without division, without separation, the distinction of two natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ." as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. That's, uh, so just uh, an illustration. I read this in some of my reading (coughs) this week, but uh, if you were to take apple juice and orange juice, and put equal amounts into a container, and shake it up real good and stir it up real good. It's not, it's not all apple and it's not all orange. It becomes something else completely. It becomes a mixture. We see that's not what we're saying about Jesus. We're saying that Jesus is at one time, in one person, all God. And all men. You say, "Well, that's a mystery. I can't, uh, I can't figure that out." But aren't you glad that you serve a God that's bigger than your mind, that's more glorious than your ability to comprehend? Because if you could comprehend Him, He wouldn't be that great, would He? He is our Savior. And here is the most important part of this, because he is both God and man, he is able to reconcile us to God in himself. You see, there is this great gulf. I know I'm repeating myself, but there's this great gulf, there's God, and then there's Created beings. There's a a great gulf. And then to make it even more vast. And more uh, unreachable. We are fallen. So it puts us way down low. And we can't get to God. And if God's going to be holy. He's not going to touch us. But thank God there is a God man. Job said it like this: "I wish I had me a daysman <laughs> that could lay his hand on the Father, or lay his hand on God, and lay his hand on me that we could, uh, and lay his hand on me that we could come together." Well, you see, that's what Jesus did. He bridged that great gulf between God and man, and he reconciled us to God in Himself by. His own power and his own death on the cross. His power was displayed not in military force but in weakness. He died and in death he, re- he achieved a victory. That could not have been achieved any other way. He died for our sins. But then he arose because he had the power and the authority to lay his life down. And the power and authority to pick it up again. So this is such important stuff that he is teaching these uh Pharisees and and scribes and Sadducees and all the religious crowd and all the uh, uh, common people. And apparently there's some common people there that kind of get it. Because listen to what it says. And the great throng heard him gladly. Somebody said, man, that's good preaching. And the Pharisees said, he talking about but that is pretty much all i have to say the hypostatic union is the fact that there are two natures the nature of god and the nature of man Mm -hmm. in the one person Mm -hmm. the lord jesus let's pray father we bless you and thank you for your truth for your word. I pray that these scattered thoughts, I, I know I haven't done this subject justice, but cause us to stand in awe of our Lord Jesus. As the apostle said, great is the mystery of godliness. It's a great mystery. Help us to embrace it, even when we can't completely understand it. But rejoice in it, in Jesus' name.